Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Today we're going to talk Trump's uh, legal problems again, update there, and we're going to talk uh, Judith Butler and precariousness and grievability with regards to Gaza and IVF, uh, the IVF ruling in Alabama. But before we get to that, I just want to note parenthetically that, you know, as usual, this podcast is sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. You can uh, support support us on uh, Patreon at $5 a month to listen to our bonus episodes. Or if you support us at $10 a month, you get our bonus episodes plus a free digital subscription to the magazine plus a discounted print subscription if you uh, would so, so wish. Um, but yeah, with that out of the way, uh, why don't we talk about Trump's uh, accelerating uh, catastrophic legal judgments before we dive into the, the more it's, terrible. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. And before we get into the heavy stuff, it doesn't hurt to um, whatever the opposite of, of grief, grieving is to celebrate, uh, find joy in the suffering. There's probably a German word for that. Find, there's probably a German word for finding joy in the suffering of Trump specifically. Um, <laughs> Trump and Freida. <laughs> <laughs> Trump and Freida. <laughs> So yeah, what's the, what's the latest here? Because we've talked about it a bit. He's got these judgments. They're totaling what, like cl- near half a billion dollars or something at this point? Over half a billion. Um, yeah. So so we mentioned the defamation judgment against him um, f- from the case of defaming now a convicted convicted case of defaming Eugene Carroll, uh, which was just a couple of million dollar fine. And then he did it again and got a much larger fine of $83.3 million. Um, then, uh, just a few days ago, he was convicted in this business fraud, fraud case under, uh, New York state judge, um, Angoran is his name. I think it's like a Lord of the Rings ass name. <laughs> Um, so that penalty is $355 million plus interest for a total penalty of $454 million. And so and this is, this is also the judgment where like he can't, his business cannot operate in New York anymore. Right. right? A huge bunch of other penalties. Yeah. Where basically for, I think five years, Trump can't run anything yeah. having to do with real estate in New York state and his, it's like, we presume you are a con artist and we were going to have a five year moratorium on your fraud. Yeah. yeah. And his rotten kids, I think, have one or two year uh, bans as well. Um, and the funny thing about that is, so uh, he's, you know, scrambling to figure out a way to like, you know, put up the cash or borrow the cash to, to put put up a bond, you know, which is basically if you if you the rules, as I understand them, I may be mistaken here, but I think this is how it works, is you have 30 days from the judgment to put up the money into escrow, basically, um, if you want to appeal without the judgment being enforced on you. You can still appeal if you don't post the bond, but then they they will start taking your shit um, bef- before that the appeal process is, is settled. And so if he wants to protect himself fully, he has to put up, you know, in the you know, 454 million plus 83.3 million. So like a, a quite a considerable sum. So the yeah, care one wonders if if he even has the ability to to do that in terms of liquid assets. Is it, but maybe it doesn't have to be liquid. Maybe he can just like. Well, it's got to be cash money, right? It has it's, to be. Then yeah, yeah. Then yeah, uh, one wonders if if he's going to have to liquidate some stuff to even do that. 
Right. And so there's a couple of ways to do that. Oh, one last detail there. So the Carroll judgment was a while ago. So he has two weeks left to go on that. And then he has a month, March 25th. That's when the uh, the other bigger one is due. Um, and so, yes, as you say, it's very unclear whether he has the money like out of pocket, you know, like in a checking account or something. That would be very strange to have a, a checking account with $500 million in it. Um, you know, traditionally, what you would do is go and like get a loan, right? That you go to the bail bondsman basically, but like right. for yeah. rich people, but you know, the, the, you know, you, you pay them like a, a upfront, like 10% or something like that. And then they cover the rest of it, you know, with the assumption that you're probably going to win your appeal to some degree, or the judgment's going to be reduced a bit. And then, um, you know, you won't be on the hook for the whole thing, but you still need to provide collateral that's worth, you know, whatever that uh, difference is between what you pay up front and the, what the the bond company is covering. And that's a big amount of money. And Trump's main assets are all real estate. And the real kicker is he just got convicted in court for lying about the value of his real, <laughs> estate, of his real estate. So <laughs> if you're a bail bonds company, you know, you're like, am I going to put up $400 million to cover this fucking asshole? And nobody has any idea what his crappy shit is worth. Like <laughs> it's so, it's so perfect. That's, the, the next fraud case is actually the people that gave him the bail money <laughs> coming after him for improperly valuing the assets that, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's entertaining. So we'll see what happens in a few weeks, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there are, there are certain other requirements too, actually that, that like for some of his outstanding loans, he's like up to his eyeballs and other debt already. Um, Deutsche bank gave him a bunch of loans have been like his banker for many years. Uh, but they were, they, uh, require him to have a net worth of $2.5 billion and liquid assets of 50 billion, 50 million on hand at all times. So, you know, if he goes below that by, you know, drawing down to pay this judgment, it could, that could spell problems. And the final thing is that there's a new trial, new state trial for falsifying <laughs> business records that's starting on, um, March 25th, the same day that the, um, yeah, bond for the big, big judgment is due. That's the one from Manhattan district attorney, Alvin Bragg. It's like kind of complicated. We can get into it in a future episode, but <laughs> it's, it's very funny. To, I don't know, funny and depressing to me that like the only court system in the country that seems to be moving with any kind of alacrity is the New York state courts to just get this motherfucker, you know? And, yeah. Well, they have uh a long history of uh, con men and fraudsters from Bernie Madoff to all, you know, a, a, any number of New Yorkers that, um, that they've practiced on. So uh makes some sense that it would be New York, I guess, but yeah, imagine, imagine if all the different system, court systems and, and uh, states and jurisdictions went after him with equal alacrity that uh, it's still nice to see someone when, when, when the uh, dominoes start to fall and, and some accountability begins that <laughs> uh, all of our impressions about just how much of a thug and fraud and, you know, con man, uh, Trump is, is being revealed to everyone, you know, not that it matters with people that want to vote for him, but, yeah. um, it might I on the margin. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think, you know, it's going to deflate his like reputation as the business genius expert. Um, 
And I think also, you know, he's going to be spending like half of his campaign contributions on legal fees and judgments against yeah. his estate. It'll, it'll disrupt his schedule as well and his ability to go to, you know, and in go to rallies. And and they, like, I can't, you know, uh, it's hard to say exactly. You look at polls, Nikki Haley seems to be like 10 points ahead of Biden or 15 points up in Michigan. If she were actually the nominee, that might be very different. You know, she's like, she's kind of like Mitt Romney and has a different set of unpopular opinions. But boy, imagine thinking Donald Trump's our man. He's our horse. We're going to bet everything <laughs> on this guy. <laughs> this guy yeah. is going to be in court for all of the campaign season in 2024. The Just the, I don't know. Quite the contrast with the Democrats, you know, just pissing themselves over whether who who's the who's the safest one? Who's the safest one? The safest one we picked last time. Now he's super fucking old. Oh no! How do we get rid of him? We can't. But let's panic about it. <laughs> like, uh, so yeah. But they they also seem totally tone deaf to like the increasing number of groups that that are uh, you know objecting to Biden as the nominee. Though not just Arab Americans, but Black Americans and young people. And it just seems you know we have. Um, you know, the, the latest protest of Biden, he's been having the ceasefire protests for so many of his speeches for however long. And, and now you have an active uh, service member, 25, 26 year old service member from the Air Force uh, who in D.C. went in front of the Israeli embassy and lit himself on fire after saying, I'm about to do an extreme form of protest mm -hmm. and uh, talking about the genocide and saying free Palestine and. So, I mean, this is this is now the second self-emulation in the United States in front of an Israeli embassy, the other one being in Atlanta. Um, th this is not a good sign <laughs> for for some uh, for a party that prides itself in differentiating their nominee from the other old white guy uh, who's, uh, you know, known for his violence and so forth. Um, not great. No, it's not. But I don't know. It's like Ezra Klein had that podcast episode where he spins out this, you know, like, let's go back to the days of the brokered convention back in like the 1920s, when like all the party bigwigs and the machine bosses would get together in a smoke filled room and he'd just sort of give Biden the old heave ho. And it's like, it, yeah, it hasn't worked like that for 60 years. You know, there's no well, mechanism they, here. They did the equivalent of that in, in backing Biden uh, to defeat Bernie, of course. Like Biden was not the people's choice to any degree before they, you know, coordinated everyone to drop out before Super Tuesday. So it's not like Biden is the choice of the people to begin with. Well, except he did win all the primaries or enough of them to get the delegates. After that fact. Right. Yeah. yeah but that's yeah. that's how you would coordinate that sort of thing. You, right. you would have had to organize as a primary challenger to him a year ago plus and they didn't do it and all the filing deadlines are passed to, but like that's that would have been the traditional way to do it yeah. right yeah there's just not a you know not a plausible mechanism here and like, i think i don't know like we have to our imaginations are real pinched if, if like the it's you know pressuring the elites to do the right thing is always a difficult task but like if they had any um sense of the real pressure, then they would find a way to replace him with someone. It's not like well, Biden's step, beloved or something. Step one in the Ezra Klein's like program is convince Biden to drop out. Um, you know, and like that's that's the the only the only plausible way to I see to replace him is either he dies or he quits. Sure. And they literally convinced a number of people to drop out the last time that Biden was the nominee. So like it took like a call from Obama and you know 
Right, sure, but he's a, they weren't a going to be. They weren't already president. I think, and they were the promised difference. things, and, and certainly, yeah, given they were, various things. They were gonna yeah. lose to Bernie, and they said, "All right, everybody, get, gang up on sure. Bernie, so that we can have not Bernie and distribute." I would the just love to job. see stories of they tried, and and Biden's stubborn, and you know, this is this was the, you know they tried to to uh, to do. I mean, let's just. Admit it. This panic is is all performance. There's not any real pressure being applied to Biden to drop out. There's not any real attempt to to get someone else to to rival him, um, and uh, and that's a shame. But like, let's let's not pretend any of it has to do with what the people want. Uh, I'm curious no. to see what happens in Michigan with it with the uncommitted vote. Um, I don't know that that'll have any effect. Probably not on anything, but it, it doesn't hurt. So I um, do think that 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 the the pressure is starting to bite in the sense that the Biden team members of it, at least are starting to panic about, you know, their prospects in November, if nothing else. Um, and it hasn't changed their attitude towards Gaza at all. Not yet, not really. you know, but they have like yeah. taken a few sort of semi-related steps. Like they sanctioned all those, uh, yeah, the, the truly crazy settler, like, like terrorists, like straight up literal terrorists in the West bank. Um, yeah. and that, uh, that's not Gaza, but it's, you know, it's like sort of hitting somebody, you know, like, yeah. like I think Hopefully there's somebody gives them credit for the that. younger members of the administration. I feel like, you know, uh, who didn't grow up with this like sort of maudlin view of Israel. And it's just like been basically Benjamin Netanyahu's, uh, you know, increasingly fascist state for 20 years, uh, yeah. 20 plus years. Um, you know, and that's why in a sense, I think it w if you could magic out Biden, you know, I think he is kind of uniquely terrible on this issue that anybody else, Pete Buttigieg, yeah. Kamala Harris would have a lot more. They would not yeah. be si just fucking signing and, and their own no death. No matter mark. who it is that would theoretically be as bad, they weren't the one that did it. So, so like, you know what yeah. I mean? You know, it's, it's, uh, so yeah. It, it, but, you know, look, you, Bernie Sanders and AOC have been, um, really disappointing if if you wanted biden to be pressured to change his policy or if you wanted him to drop out um you know bernie won't say i think now he'll say humanitarian ceasefire which is like presumably temporary and it's like a weird like <laughs> i don't know what he means by that to add the word humanitarian to ceasefire uh he won't label what's going on a genocide aoc is also talking about how we can't lose sight of supporting biden and everything so like you know, besides Rashida Tlaib and, and maybe a, a few other uh, squad members, you, you don't have some popular figures in the progressive wing uh, doing enough to to really help the the people that deserve representation and, and deserve to be heard about this. But man, yeah, it's just I it, it's just such a devastating thing that like the moral logic is uh, if you individuals don't vote for this guy who's who's doing the genocide, then you individuals are to blame for Trump instead of Democratic Party. You are to blame if this guy loses to Trump, if you don't address all these groups and all the people generally who are just um, finding a bright line, a very normal genocide is not a crazy bright line. It's really not. And like even those people were like, as long as it stops, like stop doing the genocide, like it's a day 140 or whatever. Like, you know, had you just yeah. done a hundred days, if you'd done a hundred and 120 days of genocide, we still would have voted for you. You know what I mean? And it's like so perverse that, that, um, you know, 
preemptively and then subsequently, if, if it happens, uh, those people who have those moral red lines are going to be blamed. I mean, you see the argument that like replacing Biden with Trump probably would not accomplish anything in terms of Gaza plausibly could make it worse. But it's also like, uh, you know, voting is a moral act. If you t approach voting in a totally utilitarian calculus about like, I'm trying to do the best good for my, you know, myself and my, my nation, the, the rational thing to do is not vote at all because almost certainly your vote is not going to be the one that tips the balance. People have to, they have an investment in the system. Right. And so you have to meet the people where they're at and like to, to, you can't, you can't possibly blame, point. you know, Arab Americans who are looking at this, like, I can't vote for this guy. Like, it's just too fucking horrible. Like I uh, didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because I got in the voting booth and it's like, it, why the fuck am I doing this? You know, she's going to win by 90 percentage points. Anyways, I'll vote for yeah. the green party. That was probably probably stupid in my case, but like you see the 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 you logic, know, yeah. Well, yeah, and th there's a lot of moral logics that apply too. Like if if you go in and vote for everyone but the president, or if you register some other vote, you are, uh, I mean, you know, you are signaling that people, ha no matter what, have to be punished for this kind of egregious betrayal of of the right. And and then as you say, like there are a lot of people for moral or other reasons who don't, you know before Trump don't find the parties appealing to, to, to their interests or find them, you know, you know, inextricably caught up in, in evil and, um, you know, super huge group of people that are never chastised that just never vote, <laughs> like let yeah. alone. So you're coming down hard on the people that do vote, um, for what they're going to do. I don't know. Yeah. So, all right. Shall we, shall we shift to the, uh, yeah. News items that we'll look through the lens of of some theory. I haven't done that in a bit, so we thought it'd be good to to bring it back. Bring back the theory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing I love you... better. <laughs> <laughs> Yummy. Tastes good. Tastes like theory. Uh, what'd you think, uh, Ryan, of, of this excerpt uh, from the Judith Butler? So she'd written um, several short books uh, or collections of essays, however you want to think of it. Uh, one called Precarious Lives, one called Frames of War, and um, the themes of precariousness and grievability, uh, grief and, and the political nature of, of grieving and mourning, uh, and connected to that, the idea of uh, life as inherently precarious uh, and how politicized populations can be and are in how uh, people are given images or not given images or allowed to grieve or not allowed to grieve. Um, there's a lot of interesting things to, to get into, but what did you think just generally about uh, the reading? Yeah, I, I thought she described, you know, both of these concepts in a way that is kind of, it's like you think, oh, well, this is kind of obvious. Uh, you know, precariousness is like the experience of, uh, you know, being in, you know, danger of some sort. Um but she kind of like gets to the to the nut of it, you know, by by talking about how like precariousness is kind of necessary for existence. Um, she she says, quote, it is not that we are born and then later become precarious, but rather that precariousness is coextensive with birth itself. Birth is by definition precarious, which means that it matters whether or not this infant being survives and that its survival is dependent on what we might call a social network of hands. Precisely because a living being may die, it is necessary to, 
necessary to care for that being so that it may live. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so just real quick there, what's cool about that opening, uh, idea is, so we know with birth, we have death, like mortality is, is baked in, we're finite. We, we, we we're born, we die, but to also realize, which you, I think are getting a first firsthand experience of <laughs> that newborns, once you're born, you require all kinds of help and social support and all kinds of things. If you are going to survive, um, that like the, the very conditions necessary for you to survive at all, uh, let alone flourish requires social reality and requires a, a political reality, uh, as we'll see. Right. Um, but that's like an opening kind of statement of, um, who we are and how we are immediately implicates the social and political. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're not, I suppose you could, you know, imagine like a different society of where people like, like would just like spray eggs all over the place, like salmon or something like that, where there is no real society, or maybe there's like a society of like mass spawning, like once every 10 years or something. And then that's, that's it. That's the only time you like meaningfully interact with others. But yeah, as you say, nothing about handling a newborn you know, really drives home the interdependence of all human life. I mean, that's the one absolutely categorically undeniable place where your your need and your existence could not possibly have happened without someone else helping you a lot. You know, an, an, an infant is just absolutely helpless they can't do shit they're terrible at at everything (laughs) they they can't think they can't talk they can barely see you know they they can they they can't even eat right you know they they, they'll like take a take some chugs of breast milk then throw it up all over my shirt you know (laughs) (laughs) that could have just been poetic expression though yeah no for sure yeah or or deliberate hostility and, and and as and as they get older right like i was um you know, in Athens out and about, uh, and, and I saw this lots of squares in Athens where the kids are playing soccer, you know, like six year olds, eight year olds, whatnot. And, uh, two of them were kicking the ball back and forth and one of them kicked it too far past the other and it went into the street. And so of course the, the dumb six year old starts running after it and some, you know, non-related adults that saw this happening immediately intervened and, and, and grabbed the kid to stop the kid from running into the street and just said, okay, stop. I'm going to get the ball for you. Just like, because there's this idea of uh, an obligation to protect lives that are, that are, I mean, we are all inherently precarious and, and we all depend on people. She points out people we know, people we kind of know, people we know really well, people we don't know at all, uh, you know, the kindness of strangers. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so so like th- this is the beginning of, of the piece, I think, a little bit is that like the realization that um, livable lives are precarious and, and, and that precarity is general. It's not specific. It's generalized and is is therefore a kind of, uh, there's an egalitarianism, a kind of equality in our precariousness and in our duty to um, care for, for others and, and help um, help each other through that precarity. Right. Um, and, and that then goes to the conditions that make a livable life socially and politically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I get into this in my book actually quite extensively. Um, but yeah, if you, you, anybody existing in any sort of complex society now, 
you know, it's like, like you can't deny how many other people had to do something for there to be like something in the grocery store for you to buy. Uh, when you go, you want to feed your family or for there be, for there to be such a thing as the United States dollar that you can exchange for those groceries at the grocery store. You know, it's like, this is, this is decades and centuries and, and millennia of, of, of backbreaking political work and technology and, and, all of this other shit going on all around you, mostly by people you'll you've never met and you'll never see. Ryan, you didn't build that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't build it. You didn't. Yeah, this is one of my claims in the book that even your business, you didn't build that mostly. You know, you didn't build the conditions necessary for it to happen at all. You know, you, it reminds me of the it's a wonderful life scene where like Jimmy Stewart is trying to save the the savings and loan from going under in the in the kind of depression bank run uh situation and he yeah. jumps over and he's like he's like whoa, whoa you're all thinking of it wrong you know you, you know your, your money is in his house and your money is in her house and like <laughs> it's all interconnected we got to work together here yeah yeah um, but that i think yeah. it gets to the the you know her her notion of uh grievability you know so for for you to uh help someone with their yeah, precarious life to, to help them fend off the precarity of existing like my son or like that guy you saw in the street protecting a six-year-old from getting hit by a car. You have There's to a woman actually gender deception. Oh, sorry. Uh, I uh, thought I heard guy that, uh, sorry. Only, only men can, can rescue little kids from getting, getting absolutely plastered by the thousands of motorcycles on the street of Athens. Um, but, but for in order for you to do that, you must recognize that life as gr as grievable, that child, you know, as, as something worth protecting, that it would be a tragedy and people would grieve if, if the child were to die. And that's, you know, in part, that's right. you know, maybe there are other motivations too. you don't want to clean the blood off the sidewalk or whatever. But but like it, you think fundamentally, you know, this that's that's the the instinct that goes through people's heads. Like, it's like, no, you must protect this this child because it would be. A tragedy and it would be terrible grief if a child were to be killed. And um, she says, uh, quote, for the most part, we imagine that an infant comes into the world, is sustained in and by that world through to adulthood and old age and finally dies. We imagine that when the child is wanted, there is celebration at the beginning of life. But there can be no celebration without an implicit understanding that the life is grievable that it would be grieved if it were lost and that this future anterior is installed as the condition of its life. Um, and yeah, that, yeah. that pr pretty much, you know, you could sort of probably draw out the parallels from there yourself to some degree, I imagine, but she goes on to talk about, uh, you know, after nine 11 and you had, you know, Oh a, yeah. And, and, and here's, here's the thing, right? Like, who we consider, which lives we consider grievable, uh, worthy of being mourned, and and therefore which lives we consider as livable lives, as 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 human life at all, really. That's affected, uh, and literally, it's like an affective thing. We feel that way, or we don't, and that can be in turn influenced by the images and the and the, and the frameworks for uh, thinking and feeling that can be influenced, like by media, uh, such as in after nine 11, whose bodies were shown, what kind of, who, what rituals were done for whom, you know? And <clears throat> so you, you were going to say about nine 11 is that, you know, we all remember, uh, those that are old enough, 
there was a real nationalistic, patriotic kind of um, public mourning for the victims of uh, 9-11. Uh, but yeah. once the war started, uh, there was a, a lot of censorship and resistance to um you know, it used to be you would see the caskets coming home. So, so forget for the moment even about the people that our soldiers are killing. Even our soldiers, you know, were their their deaths were censored, and reports about and images uh, about the effects of war were, um, you know, controlled in a way, uh, and that has a certain effect on the grievability of those lives lost in war. And so she kind of gets into that a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. The, I, I think if I remember correctly, this is, this is an innovation from George W. Bush that previous presidents, whenever soldiers had been killed overseas, it was thought to be a mark of respect for them that, that, that they were allowed to be photographed by news photographers, uh, you know, when they're coming out of the, the, plane the c-130 and you'd have like a stack yeah, the of, caskets with the flags wrapped around yeah, right? yeah exactly and bush banned that and he banned it for exactly the reasons that butler is talking about in this article that it makes a distance um and it, it it allows people to look away to not notice i guess which is which is one way that that the sort of lack of grievability could could happen because you know you're talking about people who are you know like some of the most valorized in all of like pop culture and media, you know, it's like what, what, what institution in the country has like the highest approval rating? It's the military and the police. <laughs> military wins by a mile. It's like 75% approval rating and the police are yep. down by like 55%. Um, and, and yet, uh, people allowed themselves to, to look away, you know, to be, to, to, sort of not notice the fact that, you know, as was increasingly obvious over time, these people are being killed for no fucking reason whatsoever. They're out there getting blown up and right. shot and, and, uh, wasting and they're, and they're coming back with mental illness and, and suicidal yeah. ideation and, and all kinds of, you know, physical and, and psychological needs. Um, and but, I, I, know, I think the we, cult of the, the troop was almost a compensation <laughs> for that. Like people maybe implicitly felt ashamed that they would let this happen. Um, and so if we just glorify them in the media and stuff and we, you know, we allow ourselves to, you know, assuage the guilt a yeah. little bit. Sorry. But it's interesting, you. you know, like when, remember when uh, I think, I mean, it's probably been pointed out by a number of people, but I remember when Matt Brunig was pointing out the attitudes towards the poor, uh, largely negative, don't help them. Uh, then the attitudes towards veterans. Oh yes. Do anything for veterans. And then he showed, well, these, uh, this Venn diagram over has a lot of overlap. <laughs> there are a lot of <laughs> veterans who are poor. <laughs> and yet, you know, when you, when you have images in the media of poor people, uh, certainly not, you know, showing, uh, veterans in their army fatigues and whatnot. It's, you know, you, you have racialized and other kinds of frames, um, that, you know, make people feel a certain way. Uh, like that's a population that I, that's not grievable, right? Th those are not lives that, that really count. Um, and then you think about the distancing in other ways, like pushing uh, racialized populations, poor populations into ghettos, pushing old people into old people's homes, pushing people into prisons, um, you know, the, 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 the suburbs that, that want to like escape uh, confronting poverty and confronting um, populations in a way that, you know, you're going to have cognitive dissonance, uh, unless you're really good at, um, you know, thinking, 
um, that this is not a real life that you just step over a, a unhoused person, you know, uh, a lot easier to, to, to just turn off the, the, the TV or the phone or, or, you know, control your images yeah. in the suburbs. Right. And that, you know, the, the lack of attention applies way more to like the people of Afghanistan and Iraq who are being killed, not yeah. in the thousands, but in the tens and hundreds of thousands. Right. Um, in a, a pointless, unwinnable war, you know, that never like should have Vietnam, been started. You know, just like in. Yep. And uh, people just turned away. You know, the the, the media, it was um, the, one of the most maddening experiences of the first Biden administration is when they, they pulled out and all these troop humpers in the mainstream media, like Jake Tapper and Richard Engel, these type of guys, Jim Scudo, the CNN, I forget his, that might not be his name. But like suddenly they were really pissed off about Afghanistan after having like basically mentioned it like five minutes a year for the previous 15 years. It was like saturation coverage, just savaging Biden. How dare you, sir? How dare you? It was like yeah. the the thing was a complete shit show from start to finish. Of course, the end was going to be a disaster. Of course, it's humiliating when the Taliban comes and like knocks over our tin pot little fake government in like 30 minutes, you know. But it's like, whose fault is that? Why did we waste all this time and money? Well, one reason is you guys didn't want to look. You couldn't admit to yourself what was happening. And so we just, you know, killed 250,000 people for no reason. You know, yes. back to literally square one with the same people in charge of the country that we kicked out 20 years ago. I mean, God, I'm just yeah. getting mad again. But. No, yeah. Well, right. And, and then it's just uh, with... Israel and, and Gaza right now, it's, it's just another instance of that with, you know, U.S. arms and, and no bright red lines and all that. You have this massive collective punishment, this genocidal killing campaign uh, that's killed, you know, 30 plus thousand uh, people uh, since late October, mid-October. And uh, it's, um, boy, we have all the images accessible with social media, don't we? Uh, just unbelievable images uh, and video captured uh, of children, families, uh, cultural devastation, all, all these, these frames of war. But as, uh, you know, Butler points out at some point, uh, she says, or they say, sorry, uh, you know, they're talking about uh, Talal Assad, the anthropologist and, and he, his work on suicide bombings and how, people feel a certain kind of revulsion and disgust in the face of that in a, in a way that isn't necessarily felt or very often felt when um, witnessing or thinking about state violence. And so um, Butler writes, uh, his thesis is that we feel more horror and moral revulsion in the face of lives lost under certain conditions than, uh, than under other conditions. And they write that, for instance, someone kills or is killed in war, and the war is state-sponsored. We invest the state with legitimacy. We consider the death lamentable, sad, and unfortunate, but not radically unjust. And yet, if the violence is perpetrated by the insurgency groups regarded as illegitimate, then our affect invariably changes, or so Assad assumes. And so we could we could talk about you know October seventh, and we could talk about uh, Hamas and and the kind of politicization of, of grieving and of the discourse around the lives lost on October 7th in Israel versus 
ever since the lives lost in, in Gaza and in the West Bank. And so uh, Butler writes, it's clear that he is saying something important about the politics of moral responsiveness, namely that what we feel is in part conditioned by how we interpret the world around us and how we interpret what we feel uh, actually can and does alter the feeling itself. And then Butler writes, when a population appears as a direct threat to my life, they do not appear as lives, but as a threat to life. Um, and this, of course, is how Netanyahu and others frame the collective punishment and genocidal actions as a defense of life, actually, right? This is this is all defensive. And the Palestinians literally are called, they're all Hamas. <laughs> they're all yeah. Hamas. And so the, the murdering of 13,000 plus children, the, the uh, amputating of, of toddlers limbs, the like untold atrocities. Well, that's just, that's, that's something done to a threat to life. That, that is not a taking of life or destruction of life. That is defensive life. And this is literally the narrative that that's pushed. And for me, one of the only explanations I can see for how many people seem just not to care. Like, I know there are people that care a lot, but they feel helpless and don't know what to do or or don't want, you know, they think it's like a kind of uh, pornography to look at all the bad images. And I, I get all that. But I think there's just a lot of people that are in favor of what's going on uh, or just don't care. And to to so many people, it seems clear to me. Uh, obviously, to to Israeli many Israelis and the and the government, but also to a lot of Americans, um, all those Palestinians that are dead, injured, and are currently under siege, their lives are not grievable, and that's why I don't see the grieving, because they they are yeah. not considered life but threat to life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I would distinguish between two things. <clears throat> um, you know, basically, you have what we were talking about earlier with the Americans in Afghanistan, uh, you know, well, especially like towards the second half of the war when basically it was getting no attention whatsoever. It's just this like smoldering catastrophe that was just like, just not getting any better year after year. And people just didn't pay attention to it. It was like, it, it was unpleasant to think about. And so that they were yeah. just, it just they like, just let's look away. Um, and I think there is, you're right. There's, there's quite a bit of that going on with respect to Gaza. You know, I mean, frankly, I find it difficult to like, you know, pay super, super close attention to everything. Cause it's just so fucking horrifying. Um, but I think there's another aspect of this that is even more disturbing that it's, it's like, it's not that the population is not grievable, in the sense that we sort of don't notice or we pretend not to notice when they're being like killed by the thousands. It's that it's good that they all need to die. Like, like a right. sort of the gen, uh, uh yeah. shifting that sure. all the way into to genocide. And, you know, the, the opinion polls than Israel. Um, I mean, people, I was just watching a video about this by Sean, um, and he reminded me of that picture from 2014 and Operation Protective Edge. And they're bombing Gaza, you know, of course, one of the many times. And Israelis had gone out to look. It was like a fireworks show. They took their, 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 their white plastic chairs, beach chairs, and were sitting out on the sand and cheering. Right. It's entertainment. As right. the fucking yeah. bombs blew up. 
And I think that's not, that attitude is ratcheted up by like a factor of a hundred in Israel oh, yeah. today. It's just absolutely oh, yeah. collective bloodlust on a scale that's, that's right. uh, frankly, Americans are, are sort of doing the not paying attention to that uh, uh, with respect to the Israeli attitude. You know, you hear just straight up genocidal shit from people on the street and ministers in the government. Um, yeah. And that they don't want to hear that either. No. And, and the soldiers parading around with like lingerie, the soldiers like running tanks over food and, and blowing up homes and celebrating. And it, it's, it's beyond belief. Uh, initially I was going to say, don't forget that, you know, genocide is often, uh, especially, you know, thinking about the Holocaust accompanied by a justification that this group is a threat. Right. And that like, yeah. even if it is bloodlust and even if it, it manifests as just uh, extermination, it's extermination of, you know, what the Nazis would call like a threat, you know, something that is like destroying our, our people, our society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you're right. Like both then and now um, that, that justification of self-defense is accompanied by all kinds of disgusting desires and, and um, performances. And I mean, it's like, if you go back to Augustine or uh, Plato or any number of theorists who talk about affect and desire, like, or, or let's, let's go to Aristotle, you know, we are habituated into loving certain things. And it's important that we, we, we love uh, or have an erotic pull towards the right things, not the wrong things. You know, I often tell my students, like, if, uh, if a parent rewards a child for like, punching a sibling and they, they get like a positive feedback loop for being sadistic. They learn to love the wrong thing. They learn to love being a sadist. And, and that's like, they get habituated into thinking that is the, their good. That is the good that they seek is to, is to, you know, act in this way. And that's why it's, it's not, it's not just about not loving or, or desiring things. It's about ordering that properly and, and not <laughs> finding pleasure and finding joy in terrible things. And that's, that's something that war, of course, does. It perverts our sense of of the good. Yeah. Which is why, which is why people who are so calmly like real politique about this, which is crazy, because this is not good realist politics to support this, like for anyone. No. Right? It's no. Insane. I personally um, do not want American democracy to end. And that's why Biden needs to put a lid on this shit for God's sake. <laughs> Uh, yeah, or for Israelis' interests, or for yeah. the interests of the Middle East or the world, or for like, like it's just an, an insanity. And so then, when you see the service worker lighting himself on fire in his army fatigues, by the way, strategically, I think smart um, to try to appropriate the image of the American uh, soldier and, and yeah. you know use that with, of course, the famous image of self-immolation in the Vietnam War, like the um, the monk and and um, this is important because people, they are wrong about what is sane and what is good and what is healthy. And they, they do not feel what they should feel about what's happening in the world, or they don't feel at all because they're not thinking or seeing what's going on. And um, they need to be made to feel differently um, so that public opinion can change. Uh, although so much now is like not about public opinion. The elites are just ignoring the public opinion of even Republicans who are, who are again, want to seize fire and are against the genocide. Um, yeah. But you have, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah. It's, it's, it's something, it's, something I was actually thinking about a little bit while preparing for this episode, which is like, how do you lean against this? Um, because 
you know, you, you sometimes hear people saying like, oh, you need to bear witness to all of the atrocities. And I don't think that really does anyone any favors to look at actual carnage, you know, like that will give you PTSD in short order. Like that is like, I remember one time, uh, I just happened to be on Twitter and I, and I thought I found this, the, this account that was someone allegedly involved in a crime. And right at that moment, he uploaded a video of him shooting his coworkers like a like a first person shooter type video like i'll never forget that shit for the rest of my life and that is uh you know a fucking like one billionth as horrible as some of the shit coming out of gaza and i think it's better to actually try to connect with the victims on an emotional level in terms of what they did when they were alive, you know, like, like what's happening to people who are, who are still around, like how people, uh, suffering were, were like you, um, or like people, you know, uh, there was one, one video earlier in the, like con- the beautiful poets that was assassinated by uh, yeah. the Israelis, the professor poet. That was, that was one. Yeah. For all our academic friends. Um, and and literature literature friends another one was the video of the nicu babies you know being transported to egypt without their mothers uh yeah. you know tiny sure. little malnourished babies yeah. that looked like just like my son yeah. you know except uh, a lot skinnier and it's like how what, how on earth can that nobody could possibly justify this you know in any kind of rational sense it's I, well and i pure it, right, sadism it, and and if those images do not move you, then there's something really rotten um, that that can't readily be fixed in you. Yeah. Right? Like if. Um, and there was. I a- do. I do think though that the censorship of those of those images and the censorship around. So, for example, the serviceman who lit himself on fire. Uh, you know, I don't know that you need to see the whole video of him doing that to himself, but to see an image of just the fire, you don't see any disfigurement. You just see like the fire and the, and the fatigues, but the headlines in the States have largely omitted uh, or trying to try to um, refute the, the motivation for it. And also tried to label him mentally ill and tried to frame the story as not about Gaza, not about, um, you know, funding the genocide. And, and, and that's part of the reason is people to the extent that they're paying attention to anything are, are being influenced by that kind of censorship and that kind of narrative spin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think there's, there's tasteful ways. Like I saw a CNN crew that went into to Gaza and they went to a hospital and stuff and they did show a lot of the injured people in an, in a tasteful way that wasn't right. like, you know, like chest yeah. being Salacious. split open and yeah, yeah, just, just gore for gore's sake. Spectacle. Spectacle. Yeah. It was like actually talking to the injured people and it was like, here's, this this you know young baby you know, entire family six people is dead and they don't they can't even like they, yeah. there's no way to even and tell tell them what happened. Um, another one that got to me a little bit was uh, that that actually Sean, as I said, mentioned was this twelve um, year old YouTuber named Ani Eldus. Uh, probably mispronouncing that, um, but yeah he. You know, posted a, a video a few months ago celebrating having reached 1,000 subscribers. And like, I remember doing that not that long yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah, you can I relate to that. I also yeah. am a baby, have a baby YouTube account. And he posted like yeah. gaming clips. You know, I play video games probably less now than I once did. But it's like, right. there's just a regular ass kid, you know, just just, a, yeah. just incredibly earnest and, and just like wants to oh, make YouTube shit. Boy. 
and hit not only him, his entire family wiped out, you know, whole beautiful yeah. family of people blown up. It just, it reminds me of, I mean, the fact that there has to be, remember the kids put on a, uh, a press conference, all the kids, like this group of kids put on a press conference to ask for help and to not be bombed in English. They did it in English, uh, these little children. And, and we can come up with a thousand more examples of images and relatable lives uh, that could reinforce the grievability and the precarity that deserves that, that we have an obligation to protect. We, especially in the country that is arming the, the violence, but the fact that it's, I mean, I do think these kinds of things have influenced the public opinion polls because it is a very unpopular thing that's going on. And, and, and Biden is just, you know, tremendously pig headed because he's a Zionist through and through. Um, but but it reminds me of Rousseau's point about how all of the praise for civilization, quote unquote, and all of the kind of trappings of modernity and the complexities of social relations that that developed, including warfare, including the nation state, including the triumph of reason, right? That is actually to blame for so much violence because of the distancing and the rationalization that that removes us from that very, what, what Rousseau would say is natural pity and compassion, that even a horse won't just walk over the, the, the corpse of another horse or the corpse of another. Like, even before we evolved into human beings, there was a natural pity that was like pre-rational. And it takes rationalization or like the, the, the kind of schemas and, and worldviews and complexities that language and reason develop to like have to return, like you said, to have to have like a, a piercing through all kinds of obfuscating nonsense in order to like, oh yeah, that's a human also. <laughs> like, let's, let's protect that human. Um, how, how sad, right? That that's, that's where we're at, that it's, it's so complicated to, to, to do something so simple. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, technology, you know, can make that a lot easier, I think in a lot of ways. Um, you know, just pressing a button, uh, you know, to sh yeah. shoot a, a artillery shell from over the horizon rather than yeah. having to go door to door. Um, yeah, both to, to do the violence and to capture the violence. It works both ways, right? And to yeah. post a blog about it. And all that That's stuff. what I was going to say. You know, the, this this guy, I, I actually looked up this kid's YouTube account and he, you know, from 1,000 subscribers now has 1.64 million you know, the one video, the 44 <laughs> yeah. seconds long that he posted had now has 5.6 million views, 60,000 comments, you know, most of them in Arabic that are just mourning, you know, they turned it into an impromptu little grieving page yeah. right there. And so it can, it can enable that sort of thing. And I will say that the United States is an outlier. Um, you know, Germany is another outlier. I mean, you, so many countries and people from all around the world. It, it is just a, a phenomenally unpopular. It is clearly the 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 kind of moral judgment of of the world is almost entirely with the Palestinians uh, and aghast at, at uh, the genocidal murder, uh, including you know majority of Americans too. But um, yeah, yeah. Shall we uh, talk about IVF in our last few minutes? Um, yeah, sure, sure. And we, I, I guess we won't get to, to Gabe's piece. Um, maybe we'll do that for another time. But uh, yeah, so maybe tell people who don't know about the crazy theocratic ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court. Yes. So 
I think people have probably seen it, but just in case, you know, basically the Alabama Supreme Court, um, I think it was almost unanimous one dissenter, if I remember correctly. But anyway, they basically called into question uh, that they so sorry, they let me back up. They did a fetal personhood ruling. Basically, now that Roe versus Wade is overturned um, and that state courts have more power in this particular area, they've ruled that human, you know, Basically, embryos? life embryos, begins right? at conception, you know, from, from, from the zygote to the embryo to the fetus to the, to the, you know, tax paying citizen. Um, and that, you know, that means that the, the, uh, obvious implication of that is that in vitro fertilization is highly questionable, if not, you know, a priori illegal. You know, you're, you have, you know, typically what people do to way, the way that that works is, um, you know, you get a whole bunch of fertilized eggs and you try to implant a bunch of them, you know, because the whole point is the woman's having trouble conceiving, you know, or the man's sperm is no good, whatever, you know, so like it's not working naturally. And so you throw a whole bunch of eggs at the uterine wall, so to speak, and you hope that a, a few of them stick. And usually it's more than one. Sometimes it's a bunch. Sometimes it's like seven or eight. And then you just cut those out so that you can have one normal pregnancy because, you know, human beings are not designed to have octuple you know that they're they're not like dogs uh and that would mean you almost certainly all the children would die or be horribly malformed i do think ivf does often lead or, or can often lead to like um you know twins or triplets or whatever. yeah you could do that on purpose too you know you could say all right looks like we have eight going let's cut it down to three or two you know and so you know or, or you could save some of them actually they this is what happens a lot of times rather than like throwing them out you put them in cold storage and then you can go back and try to put them in again you know so that way it's not exactly an abortion but insofar as like any of those embryos are destroyed at any point that's a murder um and so the like one according of the, to the court right? yeah yeah so one of the few uh ivf clinics in the state in like what birmingham i think university of Alabama, Birmingham, it, it shut down over overnight. It was like, we don't want to be all thrown in jail because of this. Um, the the uh, Alabama attorney general said that they're not going to prosecute anybody on this. The whole Republican Party is running away from it as fast as they can. Trump, um, the the Senate Republicans put well, out. You know, a, Mike Pence did I use IDF, uh, IVF, not IDF. Look at that, look at that Freudian <laughs> slip. Look at that Freudian slip. That's because there's the image of him, you know, signing his name on the on the missiles that went uh, to to the IDF. So, but he, his his wife uh, and he used IVF. I believe. So he's like supportive of that, right? Yeah, it's pretty common. I mean, that to 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 get rid of full-on fetal personhood from the zygote stage, like the literal one-celled, you know, uh uh incipient embryo is insane. Uh and I think every I mean, for, for, forget the moral debates, just the idea of like having a police state looking into miscarriages and looking into IVF, like, like just like the kind of, I mean, you're talking about shutting out clinics and not having access to IVF, but like the, the kinds of implications of um, regulating um, destructions of embryos in whatever fashion and, and implicating, you know, uh, criminality in that is, is just, uh, I guess mass incarceration wasn't big enough. Uh, we, we need to, to make it, you know, even, even crazier and more, uh, yeah. more of a police. We need to preemptively 
lock up everyone in the, all the women in the country, frankly, uh, just in case. Um, yeah, but the, the, the thing that I found interesting in this with, to bring it back to the, the, uh, Butler piece yeah. is that, you know, um, suppose that you grant fetal personhood for the sake of argument. Uh, yeah. the mother is still a person and it's not obvious from a, declaration of fetal personhood that the fetuses uh you know needs should predominate especially sure. in cases where the pregnancy is doomed anyway and it's going to kill the mother like what notion of personhood does that you know implicate and i think it's precisely this kind of grievability that in the republican rubric like women, mothers, uh, pregnant women are not grievable in the same way that as, you know, uh, fertilized embryo in That's a right. test tube is. Oh, and once, once, <laughs> once a baby is born, the Republicans do not care about grieving. <laughs> the, there's no, I mean, and this kind of goes to the broader point about um, not thinking individualistically, like the ontology here is wrong, right? Uh, because what did we say at the beginning? There's this social ontology where we're all bound up together. We're all interdependent. We have, uh, we're born into this web of, of life and death and, and support systems and all that. And so the conditions for surviving, the conditions for life, um, they often will require negotiating tricky moral and ethical quandaries about when uh, different lives are, um, you know, you know, well, like you, like you suggest, are in conflict with each other, or or there, you know, it doesn't mean just because precariousness is the generalized condition of of people that um, that there's an obvious answer on on what to do about it, even though we have an obligation to do something uh, about supporting uh, lives that are grievable. Um, but she, she writes the debate restricts itself. They write, sorry, uh, they write the debate restricts itself, not only to a moral domain, but to an ontology of individualism that fails to recognize that life understood as precarious life implies a social ontology, which calls that form of individualism into question. There is no life without the conditions of life that variably sustain life. And those conditions are pervasively social, establishing not the discrete ontology of the person, but rather the interdependency of persons. Uh, and it goes on. And, and then she talks about the kind of policies um, around, as you might expect, food, shelter, healthcare, like all, all the things that sustain and make life livable generally and 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 they also write that um not everything that falls under precarious life is uh a priori worthy of protection from destruction and they go into you know so, some interesting arguments about uh different types of life and um you know the kind of thinking you need to do to support uh life and to 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 realize that precariousness implies all these conditions that the Republicans don't attend to or care about in any situation other than this like individual one where, like you said, that the mother is disregarded, where the the embryos, if they are brought to uh, birth, what's going to happen at that point, that's disregarded. You know, the, the, the actual, the quality of life of children, babies, parents, uh, populations, if you're going to think about right to life, which they kind of argue as a kind of fraught term because it misunderstands things. You need to actually understand 
the way that we're all bound up together and the, and the conditioning uh, of what makes life survivable and, and flourishing possible. Right. And, and that yeah. none of that is uh, all of that is kind of obscured in, in the way that they do the analysis. Right. Yeah. The, you know, there used to be the joke that it's like Republicans care about life from conception to, to birth. And after that, yeah. go fuck yeah. yourself. But I think even that is too generous. You know, it's like sure. there is a yeah. crisis of neonatal care in this country. Like when when we moved to uh, Wilkes-Barre in Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, Rust Belt, um, got my wife got her first, uh, you know, appointment to the hospital we were going to deliver at. And like a week later, they shut down the delivery unit. This is happening all over the country, shutting down labor and delivery units. There's giant chunks of the country now that have no maternity wards whatsoever. You know, in addition to the huge number of people, disproportionately poor and black, of course, that have no health insurance at all. Yeah. And so it's like, you're, you know, people in like the, the, the Mississippi Delta are having to drive four hours, you know, to give birth. And like, you could, people give them birth in the back of their car. Um, and you know, that as you would expect is a fucking disaster for, uh, both maternal mortality and neonatal mortality. And are Republicans going to do jack shit about that? No, they choose to make it worse. At least, you know, that consistently has been the priority. Um, and I think it comes, you know, it's like a, it's like not even like these sort of abstract principles are rated even above, you know, the alleged personhood of the, of the, the fetus, sure. you know, the, or infant, infant mortality rate or, you know, any, any number of indicators. Right? Yeah. The, like the, you know, the, the infant mortality rate, you know, it's, it's like 20 times higher than it is in the Netherlands for, for black uh, Americans and, and even for white Americans, it's like five times higher. You know, like th- this is not a system that's working well for mothers or babies, you know, but but to recognize that you you do have to admit the sort of uh, interdependence of everyone that 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 if you want to have, you know, a, a healthy birth, you know, you need to have an institution there that will provide that care for you and some way of accessing it. You know, there's ways to set it up that are more conservative flavored. They suck what they exist in Germany and Switzerland. Um, but conservatives aren't interested in that stuff. Yeah. Uh, what we're saying is these Republicans are assholes. (laughs) They sure are. Um, but I think that's probably a good place to stop. Um, yeah, a bit over an hour, but yeah, yeah, we'll, um, be back in next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.